National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at cybersecuritysummit.org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, and you've joined us for the April 19th, 2023 edition of National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're fortunate enough to be joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us learn more about national security challenges and opportunities. And sometimes we're joined by guests from overseas, as is the case today. We have a great show for you. I promised in the past we would return to the nexus of climate change and national security, and we have a true expert on this topic with us this morning. Commander Andrea Cameron of the United States Navy is a permanent military professor teaching policy analysis in the, in the National Security Affairs Department at the U.S. Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. She's also the founding director of the Climate and Human Security Group. Her academic interests include policy analysis, climate change and security, climate and energy policy, human security topics, and civil military coordination during humanitarian assistance. From 2021 to 2023, she was also a Climate and Environment Policy Advisor for the Office of the Secretary of Defense for Policy, or OSDP, within the Office for Arctic and Global Resilience. She co-leads the Resource Competition, Environmental Security, and Stability Community within the Department of Defense. Andrea is a contributing author for the 5th National Climate Assessment of the United States to be released in fall of this year. Andrea Cameron holds a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science from Marquette University, a Master of Arts in Human Resource Development from the George Washington University, a Master of Science in Military Operational Art and Science from the U.S. Air Force Command and Staff College, an Educational Doctorate in Educational Technology from Pepperdine University, and a Ph.D. in Security Studies from the Naval Postgraduate School. Andrew Cameron is currently a Fulbright Scholar in NATO Security Studies in Belgium for the academic year 2022-2023. to Commander Cameron is teaching transatlantic uh, climate security at the College of Europe and researching climate security policy development in NATO and NATO member states. So we couldn't be in better hands this morning's topic. Commander Andrea Cameron, welcome to National Security This Week. Thank you so much, John. I'm absolutely thrilled to be with you and your audience today. So you're sitting in Belgium. What's the weather like in Belgium? It's sunny and warm. I think it's the <laughs> warmest day of the year. Uh, I had to open the windows and let some some good fresh air in. All right, rub it in, rub it in, because we're back to sort of late winter weather here in Minnesota today. So uh, I, I will highlight for our audience that Commander Cameron is on active duty in the United States Navy, and I will congratulate her right now for uh, just coming out on the captain's list. She will be promoted in about a year to the to the rank of captain, so that's great. Uh, the thoughts she expresses here today are hers and hers alone. She is not speaking in any official capacity on the part of the U.S. Navy, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. So that said, uh, Commander Andrew Cameron, let's get started with a little more background on you. I read through your academic accomplishments, which are pretty significant. Uh, you've earned both an educational doctorate and a Ph.D. as part of your professional studies. I, I take it you feel education is an important pursuit in life. How, how has your pursuit of education served you and the U.S. Navy during the course of your career? Well, you're absolutely right. I think education is so important to all all lifelong learning and the opportunity to get the degrees kind of reflects the the various career paths I've made. I started as a surface warfare officer in the Navy and then did my a master's in human resource development and a doctor of education when I was a human resources officer in the Navy. And then went back to political science uh, when I became the permanent military professor. It's just such a fantastic way to kind of engage with your life experiences. To Every time I got a degree, I was kind of they were very applied, taking what I'd learned in the Navy, my leadership experience, and figuring out what these new ideas were I was getting out of education and how I could use them in my career path. And I would say, you know, I retired 12 years ago. Uh, even back then, the Navy, the services in general, uh, really started to put more emphasis on uh, advanced degrees uh, for the officer corps, and certainly advanced degrees or even degrees in general. Uh, for the enlisted ranks. It became very important uh, part of the culture of the services. Uh, so th- I think that was a recognition that education truly matters for American national security interests, and the better educated our military forces are, the better, the more likely we are to understand the challenges out there in the world that we face. W- would you say that's a, a, a good assessment? 
I think that's absolutely true. One, it gives you a chance to kind of reflect on where your career has been and what you could do next and, and kind of incorporate uh, educational concepts. It also just is a launching pad for bringing new ideas into the force. Um, so you see this with a lot of the talent management initiatives right now across the services. They're trying to figure out how we can take the best practices from education and private industry and you know, improve our own processes and procedures and policies by taking some of those ideas and injecting them. And really looking around the world at how things are being done in other military branches of other services uh, from other countries and, and figure out, okay, can we, can we do that here? Would that make us better? Absolutely. So for the Naval War College, for example, a quarter of our student body is international officers, both in the intermediate and senior PME program, because there's so much to learn from our allies and partners. So it's it's important for them to learn from us, but I think it's just as important for the 75% of American students to learn from them. And that's probably the, the most eye-opening part of the curriculum for everybody. You know, it's funny you say that uh, th there's a huge in, uh, upside to the investment of bringing uh, foreign military officers into our service war colleges like the Naval War College, the Army War College, et cetera. When I was at the Naval War College in uh, 2003, 2004, uh, there was a Finnish Navy captain there who eventually became the commander of the Finnish Navy. <laughs> so, And I got to know him pretty well when I was a uh, naval attache assigned to Helsinki, Finland, on my last tour of duty before I retired. Uh, so there, it's, 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 it's a really important thing that, that we have at these service war colleges. So you are a permanent military professor at the U.S. Naval War College. Uh, what, what exactly does that mean? And how is your assignment at the Naval War College different than most other military officers when they receive orders to serve at a war college. So I'll, I'll do that in reverse. Okay. You can't get an instructor billet at the Naval War College as military faculty. And it's just like any other tour that you rotate through in your career path. And they're for the 05, 06 commander captain level uh, to come in and have an opportunity to teach. So if you love teaching in the Navy, it is. It's just a wonderful job. Now, permanent military professors are a little bit different. You kind of, they, they, it's, a, it's a lateral transfer. So you actually leave your, your community and you get designated by going to get a PhD. So the, your selection rate is right at the very junior 05 level. We want people who are kind of in for the long haul. Um, you, you get three or four years to get a PhD and then you serve at one of the Naval Academic Institutions until statutory retirement. So you they get... Uh, five, six, seven years of teaching out of you, and you're terminally degreed. You have, a, you know, an area of of focus. So you you know mine. It's the top subject of our of our talk today. But that that way they get their payback out of you, and the the incredible benefit for people like myself is, you know, you get stability. You're permanently assigned at those schools. And they get some, uh, kind of leaders that are not going to come and go and roll out. That can really specialize. So tell us about the, the Climate and Human Security Group at the Naval War College. Uh, what role does that group play in the edu educational programs at the Naval War College? That's a great question. So about five years ago, we had several studies groups that have existed for years, but they were all geographic. You know, you had an Arctic studies group and a Latin America studies group and a Europe-Russia studies group. And I was very interested in non-traditional transboundary security issues. And there was no real group that could talk about that. And we started with a kind of the, the framework of human security. And when we started the group, we, we had a lot of interest in that. And almost everything that got a, the most traction was climate oriented. So within about six months, we adopted the climate and human security group. And it's fluctuated between 100, 130 people on campus that are just interested. They can sign up and there's kind of like, being a think tank follower, you get regular updates and emails. We coordinate events. We coordinate lectures of opportunity. And I personally run a couple of electives, all kinds of things. We partner with local institutions. Anything you might be interested in, it's all voluntary, but it just gives us a forum to talk about these types of issues. And I noted, because as a Naval War College grad, I'm part of the uh, the alumni network, and uh, I, I just uh, saw an update that there is now an endowed chair on the Arctic Studies uh, side of uh, of uh, work at the school. Can you tell a little, a little bit more about the Arctic Studies group? 
they have a fantastic Arctic studies group. They have the Newport Arctic Scholars Initiative, I think is the name. Um, and it, and our, it's similar to mine, but it's there, it's more formalized. They have done incredible international work and they have hosted, you know, every year they get together the Arctic nations, all but one. And they're moving towards talking about kind of military cooperation in that space. And it's not that they're trying to exclude one. They're actually trying to just have the conversation about security issues in the Arctic because there's no forum for that. The Arctic Council is deliberately not talking about security. So they're talking about, you know, as the increase in military presence uh, occurs in the Arctic, what kind of things can we talk about and share and standardize? And they're trying to do it in a way that eventually, if full communications are open, all eight Arctic nations would agree yeah, and I, and I see that uh, the United States uh, just recently confirmed a, an official U.S. ambassador to the uh, to the Arctic Council. I guess uh, according to this article that I have here. Uh, so, just be- before we take a short break, uh, w- why is it important for officers in the military to go to a place like the Naval War College and earn a master's degree as part of their training as professional military officers? Well, at the Naval War College, I mean, you get a master's degree and you get your joint professional military education. And it's so important as you go through the ranks, you kind of have that uh, tactical focus when you're first in the military, and then maybe you kind of get into the operational focus. And then the professional military education is really designed to get you prepared for your next level of leadership or your next staff opportunity. So we have to have time to kind of sit back, reflect, Think about what went well and what didn't go well, perhaps in your first tours, so that you can think forward of, you know, how am I going to serve the Navy better in these future roles? That, that's well said. That's well said. So for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Commander Andrea Cameron from the U.S. Naval War College, and we're discussing the impact of climate change on U.S. national security interests. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. So, Commander Cameron, you are currently signed over in Belgium at the College of Europe, and you're studying climate change and the policy impacts on NATO security. Uh, What what led to that Fulbright Scholar Program, and what are you finding so far in your work with the NATO allies? What led to it was kind of my increased passion in this work. And obviously, over the last two plus years, there's been a lot of traction and movement within the U.S. government on climate policy and climate and security discussions. And Europe has not had kind of the ebbs and flows of talking about climate that the United States does. So they have a couple years on thinking about it strategically, messaging it, figuring out kind of where the important areas might be. So I identified NATO not for what I could bring to them, but what they could bring to to myself personally and academically, as well as, you know, to the U.S. government, because they are, in my mind, a couple of years ahead of us in thinking about it. So what are, what is it that you're finding in your research as you're talking with the NATO ally members? One of the, I guess there's a couple. Uh, one of the big things is they avoid the dichotomy, the false dichotomy that you can either be a greener force, a more sustainable force, or you can be operationally effective. That is something we routinely hear as people say, we shouldn't be talking about climate change in the military. Why? That's not your business, et cetera. Um, but if you look at back to the, like the Iran and the, uh, excuse me, the Iraq and the Afghanistan wars, so many of our casualties were based on our lack of sustainability in the field, the convoys that were getting routinely attacked rather than, you know, just regular notions of <laughs> troop on troop uh, contact, but it, these convoys were getting attacked and that's where the fatalities were. So if you can make yourself more sustainable, either for the water or the fuel, which was our two big things that we were always trying to replenish you actually have a more uh, comparative advantage to other forces in the field. Mm -hmm. So that's one big thing. Another one that I think is really interesting is, and it's probably because we're forward deployed around the world, uh, we kind of think of of bases and infrastructure at home as being one thing, and then operationally deployed forces as another. And they treat it as kind of this continuum of, you know, whatever the standards are at home, there's your same standards when you're deployed and you bring that uh, kind of line and and harmonization across the the force. I really like that kind of mindset about it. So now, you know, with my specific focus of 
um, greening or, you know, taking climate change into account, they carry it uh, all the way through their, you know, infrastructure through their operations timeline. So I recently had former EU ambassador for the Arctic, uh, uh, Marie Ann Connix, on the show. Uh, to discuss her work regarding the Arctic region. Uh, if you haven't met her yet, you should you should reach out to her. She's over at the Egmont Institute right there in Belgium. Uh, how much does the Arctic region figure into NATO strategic planning connected to impacts of climate change? It has always figured in because we have we've had countries on the high north. Um, with the addition of Finland and potentially Sweden, Boy, has it, it actually that's maybe one of the concerns is it's that they're going to swing a little too much to the to the high north and those issues. But they bring so much capability, so much uh, to the discussion already. There's there's no gap. There's only gain in, in doing that. So I'm really excited to see kind of increased discussions about the high north and climate in Arctic and how that how the security vi- uh, environment is going to change up there. From a from an operational construct, uh, what what are you hearing from the NATO allied members that you're talking with over in Europe about dealing with uh, high north issues, uh, changing climate in the Arctic Ocean, uh, that kind of thing? I think a lot of the things I hear about are um, just increased operations, need for search and rescue, uh, difficulty communicating. C four I is really hard. Uh, and C four I is <laughs> for, for our audience. <laughs> How about command and control and, and any kind of communications you're trying to do? Your networks, as you get further away from the poles, are just harder and harder to support. Uh, so as you have more increased operations, you have to think about, are they going to be able to talk and work with each other? And then in general, you have this broad winterization issue. You know, everything's going to have to operate in the, in the cold, extreme weather. And just because there's no ice does not mean it's not a very harsh environment for your platforms, for your systems, and for your people. So they're they're starting to think through a lot of those things because they, they do see that operations are going to increase, and, and they're really starting to think through what that means. And there's a huge safety factor uh, for, for operating up in the Arctic Ocean region. I mean, it's not like there's a lot of divert bases for aviation assets to go to uh, if they have a mechanical problem. Uh, for ships that have to operate up in those conditions. I mean, you're talking about really, really heavy seas, strong winds, uh, ice freezing on the decks of the ships, uh, which changes uh, sort of the uh, center of gravity on the ships. Lots of challenges uh, for operating amongst the NATO allies up in the high north. Absolutely. And I... I'll throw out some maritime issues just from one Navy person to another. There's really interesting uh, conversations about the vulnerabilities of undersea infrastructure. So the cables and the pipelines are something we're really, there's a lot more kind of awareness of and concern about going forward. Uh, certainly the, the submarine cables, I mean, that's the Internet backbone uh, of the modern world travels heavily on these uh, submarine cables that, that sit on the bottom of the ocean. And making sure those remain secure is, is obviously highly important for a, for a NATO strategy. But, you know, we're sort of talking around the issues here. Uh, obviously, these, these concerns about, you know, NATO being able to operate in the high north in the Arctic region uh, that's being impacted so heavily by climate change, the reason we have to operate in that high north is because of Russia, predominantly. And Russia is making some heavy investments in the in the Arctic Circle region as far as military basing goes. And we know that if uh, you know, when as the Arctic Ocean starts to melt and open up more frequently or more regularly, maybe even permanently at some point in the future, uh, you'll have the Northwest Passage, the the northern route right over the the top of the world, and maybe even a Northwest Passage that opens up for tra- for maritime transit of goods from China's coasts over the high the high north to European and uh, eastern uh, U.S. coastal uh, ports. Is this, are all of those things going into the calculations that NATO is considering right now? Is that what you're finding? Absolutely. That is the number one thing they're, they're looking. You know, same thing we always do is where are their ports? How many vessels do they have? What kind of capabilities do they have on those? What is the, you know, the circle that goes around their weapons radius? Um, what does it cover? Therefore, what should we do about it? Uh, surveillance, 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 just trying to watch and learn and figure out if they do this, what do we do? That's a lot of the conversations. 
So while you're over there studying, uh, which which what are the organizations within NATO that you are most connected with right now as you're doing your research? Mostly the climate security team, which is fantastic. Uh, they they actually have an office stood up that looks specifically at climate, and that's the one I'm most dialed into. Are they right there at NATO headquarters? Yes. How, how big of a team is that? Not big. <laughs> 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 and where are they getting their data? I mean, you have to connect in with, you know, science research uh, stations, et cetera, uh, probably academic research uh, institutions at civilian universities, I would assume. How, how are they getting their information to then make assessments to, to provide policy analysis uh, for policymakers? They do have some of their own kind of independent analysis. Otherwise, a lot of it is what the, the militaries are feeding in what militaries are using uh, of the member states. Um, but it's kind of an open discussion. This is also a discussion in the U.S. right now is, is which climate data should we use? Do we all have to use the same climate data? And uh, is, is it important to make that distinction? Uh, or, you know, are, are trends or kind of uh, a range of analysis enough information for us to, to do decision making? Are we going to kind of continue to argue over this one is better than that one? It's an open discussion, both uh, here and there. Where do you think we'll, we'll come out on that uh, in the debate in, amongst the NATO partners? Um, I can't say amongst the NATO partners. I think within the U.S. there was a, a, a kind of an initial drive to have a standard, you know, this is the set of facts we all want to agree to. Uh, a lot of flag officers who were kind of being pulled into the space we're kind of thinking, okay, so if you want me to do something, tell me what the information is, the, <laughs> give me the straight information, and we'll go from there. Um, but what they're finding is, as we continue to go down, particularly with war games and stuff, is how we're kind of operationalizing this a little bit, is that it's actually less important to have the absolute most rigorous data or the, we're all working from the exact same set of data. There are several sets of climate analytics that are really important. Hmm. So I, w I would say I would say this uh, as well. Um, I know that the United States Navy uh, isn't really looking at being able to operate surface vessels continuously in the Arctic Ocean, other than submarines and, and, and aircrafts, but surface ships not so much. Uh, but the Coast Guard, <laughs> they recognize the need for being able to operate up there, and so there is a polar security cutter program that's uh, been funded by Congress. Uh, eventually, there will be more ice-breaking capability on the part of the United States side. But Canada, and especially Russia, have a huge fleet of, uh, of polar-capable icebreakers. Uh, this is, again, your personal opinion, but you know we're, we're talking academics here now, policy, strategy-type uh, things. Should the United States Navy be building uh, polar-capable combatant ships? Well, in my opinion, yes. <laughs> um, one of the reasons that it's kind of been pushed to the Coast Guard is so much of the activity so far has been standard Arctic Council kind of stuff, search and rescue, et cetera. And it hasn't really been securitized as much as we thought it would. I thought with um, reopening the second fleet and the kind of look back to the to the northern Atlantic a little bit more, we might start thinking along those lines. But we're still not quite to the point of we need naval assets that can operate in that environment. We're just, we're not there yet, and it's not where we've put our focus on. Part of that is driven by what the theater combatant commands say are their requirements, right? Doesn't that sort of drive the, the military services for the manned train equipped functions? Yes, and the Arctic is really interesting in that kind of, you have some Indo-PACOM footprint, you have UCOM footprint, and you have NORTHCOM footprint. And it's for a, well, quite a while, it was like, who's doing what? Who's the lead on what? You're uh, your, your naval person. If anyone looks at our geographic combatant command map, it's it's drawn with lines in the middle of our oceans as if <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're like borders. <laughs> um, and, and oceans don't necessarily work that way, all clean like that. Um, in general, NORTHCOM has now taken over the requirements determination for the Arctic. And it'll probably stay that way going forward it'll probably take something happening before there's really enough of a interest from Congress. Yeah. That being said, I will say there's a lot more interest in Congress 
on the Arctic, particularly from the senators from Maine and Alaska. So we have, you know, the Ted Stevens Center now stood up. Uh, the, there's that emphasis on the Arctic much more than there is about climate change in general around the rest of the world. Yeah. Uh, we have to take just a short break uh, to identify our sponsor. We will be back in about uh, 45 seconds. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. The Cybersecurity Summit brings together cyber experts from industry, academia, and all levels of government to explore challenges, solutions, and opportunities in the cyber arena. The three-day summit includes speakers, workshops, discussions about advancing a cyber career, and keynote addresses by top leaders from across the cyber community. Learn more at cybersecuritysummit.org. And we're back with Commander Andrea Cameron from the U.S. Naval War College, and we're discussing climate change and human security issues. Uh, Commander, let's pivot over to the discussion briefly of the science side of climate change, if we could. Uh, all, all the climate science data clearly indicates the world is warming. Uh, the goal has been to keep warming to no more than about 1.5 degrees Celsius on, on average, which is about 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, it seems likely that we're going to push through that limit uh, because the world isn't really slowing down on pushing greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. Uh, I, I had a guy named John Englander on the show some time ago. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but uh, he's been uh, sort of you know, <laughs> talking about this issue of sea level rise. Uh, and the fact that, you know, it's it's been accelerating over the last couple of decades, and it's uh, there's an estimate right now that we might have a foot, as much as a foot, of sea level rise by mid-century. And then from that point on, it potentially accelerates even faster. So his estimates are maybe four to six feet of sea level rise by the end of this century. Uh, as you study this issue of climate change and security, how, how do you see the challenges ahead for the United States when it comes to our national security interests uh, connected to climate change? So I'll start with where you uh, were mentioning sea level rise. That's a really interesting one because, uh, you know, as your coastlines get compromised, the, the logical thing is to move inland. So we, you'll see stories in the news about this town had to kind of close some stuff down. This town, it's called managed retreat is the concept. How do we manage the retreat instead of just something gets hit by a storm and then you're just not, you're making a decision to not rebuild. That's not managed retreat. Right. <laughs> managed retreat is, you know, you know, this is coming and, and how do you, how do you manage it? Now, if you think about our, our bases, so many of them near the coastlines, some of them can pick up and move and, and go somewhere else. That's not a politically popular thing to say, but it is a rational thing to say. It's like, we can move this army base from here to here. Maritime assets, a little different. <laughs> so if you look, no matter what you do, you need your ship somewhere between the line of where the land stops and the water starts. Yep. And if sea level rise is happening, then you, have, you just have a really big challenge of how you manage that. And that's not just true for the Navy and the naval assets. It's also true for commercial shipping, for our energy supply, et cetera, that are all right there at that kind of land water border. Now to answer your second question, which is kind of broader, climate change in general affecting national security. Um, climate change is gonna affect every country around the world. It's gonna affect them in a way uh, differently. And they're going to react differently, but they're going to have very different concerns. So, for example, if we're talking to Africa, they might be interested in water security, desertification. If you're talking to the southern Pacific Islands, they're interested in sea level rise. So as we're having this broad conversation, we have to understand, because we have a global force, how it's affecting all of our allies and partners around the world, but not just them. It's affecting our adversaries and competitors as well. We are all going to change our behavior in the world based on how we deal with climate change. And no one is really left untouched by this. It's just a question of what the specific issues are and how you deal with them. So an example of that would be uh, maybe, you know, most of us think or we, we hear in the news a lot about the, the uprisings that started in Syria. Uh, and that was, you know, 10 years ago now, a decade ago now. Uh, but some of that was driven by the fact that they had they were in drought. They're, farmers, you know, it would traditionally have raised crops in that Euphrates River Valley area. There's no water. Uh, so, I mean, there's a lot of pressure on society. And then, you know, you had the uprisings. 
against the government, but you also had a huge uh, migration, climate migration, of climate refugees leaving Syria and heading north up into Europe. Uh, is that the kind of pressures that we're going to see in the future? I mean, I think we're we're sort of seeing some of that from North Africa, even heading you know migrants trying to get to Europe to places where they know there is actually water. Uh, is that what we're facing? Absolutely. Uh, that's that's one thing, and it, you kind of have this trail of what are the climate hazards, and then how are people locally going to react to them. And you generally find out there's the hazard itself. There's there's kind of a little movement. You know, you might move from your farmland into the city, or you might move from the city now into a neighboring country. So you're really reaching the maximum point of desperation when you're actually just crossing you know, boundaries and Mediterranean seas, for, for your example about Syria, uh, up into Europe. So that's the extreme. But we know with the forecast of climate change at some places around the world, you know, you, you mentioned uh, 1.5 blowing past that. But that's not 1.5 universal around the world. We right. know there's parts of the world that are going to get upwards of four degrees of warming. And those areas are just going to be inha- uninhabitable. So if that's what happens to all those people, they, they're going to go somewhere and they're going to follow that chain uh, of, of moving so their neighboring cities and their neighboring countries and then possibly cross continents is going to see an influx of people as a result of it. And Somalia and in the region in the Horn of Africa, they are in the worst drought they've had in 40 years. Uh, so now we're also talking about humanitarian crises around the world. Yes. So we might see. Uh, so you've, you've hit on two of the basic. If you know anything about climate, you usually land on the Arctic. And you land on, we'll probably see more humanitarian assistance, disaster relief. Absolutely true. I, I in general, think less about, well, I, I, have a, I have a doctorate in the humanitarian disaster relief stuff. That's how I got into this field. But what I think of climate change, I more just think of um, political instability and unrest that's going to happen because of because of the shifts and the, and the tension that fragile states are going to be under and not have the state capacity to deal with. And then, you know, with our own interests changing of where, you know, maybe we're not as interested in fossil fuel exporting states, maybe we're more interested in the rare earth element states, you know, our, our where we want to work around the world, who we want to partner with is going to start to change as well. And when you have that coupled with the new new unrest and unstable governments, we might get pulled into conflicts in parts of the world we never thought possible. And you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago that, you know, climate change is is not just impacting America and our allies and friends around the world, our trading partners, but but also those countries that, you know, we we are competitors with. Uh, China had a significant uh, lack of rainfall last year. I mean, major river systems in China have driven Chinese society for centuries, and some of them were drying up completely, some of those rivers. Uh, and they've also they've already had I think uh, forecast coming heat waves. Now we have been and this is the science nerdy side of things that you know I sometimes get into as a, as a career intelligence officer. I look at these things. We've been in a La Nina cycle, a cooling period. Uh, we are now heading into an El Nino cycle, a warming period where you know storms tend to be a little stronger, uh, heat waves might be a little more uh, persistent. Uh, do you look at these things as all at all as part of the climate uh, studies, uh, the La Nina and El Nino uh, cycles? Absolutely. Um, in general, though, we have this distinction between weather and climate, right? Whereas weather is kind of more near term, and we in the military, especially the Air Force and the Navy, we have a lot of people who specialize in weather and the operational impacts that can have. Um, and climate we view as a little bit more long-term. The comparison is that kind of weather is your mood, what's happening today, I've I got a good night's sleep, and climate is your personality, your overall, uh, what's happening with you as a system and, and how you're dealing with life. All of that is important. We are taking it into account. I'd like to you to go ahead and follow up on your question For La Nina and El Nino, you mean, or? Yes. Uh, did you have another point that you wanted to ask? Uh, well, so I was just going to say that those are weather functions, right? We know that those are changes in the weather functions, but they're exacerbated by a warming climate as more energy is in the climate in general, and it drives ch- changes in the weather cycle. 
Yes. Uh, so what we're trying to do is kind of bridge that near-term weather with more of the long-term climate into kind of what they call kind of uh, seasonal, more like looking six to 12 months out, trying to broaden our operational picture. So I wanted to go back. You, you mentioned kind of our adversaries and what are they doing? So China is a great example. You know, they published their first white paper on climate change in 2008 when we weren't doing anything. And they, they consider themselves extremely vulnerable to climate change. Now, that, that would be 15 years ago. They're not publishing as much because they don't want to project their own vulnerability. <laughs> However, all those issues still remain the same. They have people to feed. They want legitimacy to the party. Um, they need resources that they do not have. So if you look at their foreign policy around the world, you know, they're they're taking up arable land, they're taking water, they're building an entire infrastructure of the Belt Road initial, initiative of how to get all of those resources into the country. They've built a fishing fleet so they can fish almost around the world now. And they're bringing that back into the country. So a lot of what they are doing in their foreign policy looks a lot like what they need to survive the changing climate. So they're actually building climate resilience into their grand strategy their national strategy. They won't call it that. They won't call it like a climate security foreign policy, but it, it aligns absolutely with their perceived vulnerabilities and what they're doing to kind of harden themselves against those. And, and by making those investments around the world, they're also influencing governments around the world because of those foreign direct investments into the economy. Now, they, they have a little bit more of a say maybe in local affairs or governmental affairs in countries around the world that become more dependent upon Chinese foreign direct investment. Is this, is this part of their the, how they use their tools of national power? Absolutely. And I think they're doing it just so differently than how we conceive of it that we don't, you know, it's not a apples to apples, you know, we see what you're doing, you see what we're doing. We're just kind of looking past a lot of the engagement and not competing uh, kind of one for one uh, in the space. Kind of an apples to olives comparison. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> it is very different and it's not understood uh, how they use. I know you and I both teach about how you use your instruments of power. They just use them and wield them so differently based on their own perceptions of the state and the state requirements. Yeah, that's true. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week on KYMN Radio, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Commander Andrea Cameron from the U.S. Naval War College, and we're discussing the impact of climate change on U.S. national security interests. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. All right, Commander Cameron, uh, let's talk a little bit about challenges here in the United States from a warming climate uh, specifically with regard to sea level rise. That, these things are also impacting other places around the world, but on sea level rise specifically. Norfolk Naval Base, largest naval base in the world. I don't know if you were ever assigned on a ship out of, uh, out of Norfolk. Thankfully, I was not. I was not. Uh, I've heard U.S. Navy leaders discussing their deep concerns about the future of that base, especially with regard to sea level rise. Uh, other U.S. Navy bases stateside in the continental United States and in Hawaii and around the world, frankly, are going to face similar challenges as the seas rise. Uh, civilian infrastructure is also going to be threatened by rising seas, uh, those more powerful storms, storm surges, as the seas get a little higher. Uh, my alma mater, the U.S. Naval Academy, has already suffered a number of serious flooding events in previous storms, and they just recently broke ground in a brand-new seawall to try and keep the seas out when we have those uh, storm surges. You and I are both aware of the budget battles <laughs> that happen in Congress every year, especially over the DOD budget. I mean, that is always a, a, a deep concern. As a scientist, because that's what you are, who focuses on data collection analysis and, and, on, and because you are a national security expert, how do you see the impacts of climate change, including sea level rise, impacting American military installations, our ability to operate around, around the world, and perhaps most importantly, the security challenges that we're going to face uh, driven in part or maybe even in, in whole by climate change? It's a big question, but I, I trust you. You've got, you've got two doctorates. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, first, this often goes into a training and readiness category. And you can see maintenance cycles disrupted, training cycles disrupted, and, and ships who now either have to deploy to get out of the way or get somehow stuck on the pier. So there's that aspect of it, that training and readiness. There's also an operational piece. Um, 
our our forces are kind of I'm called to now support a hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico. So I'm no longer doing my regular training cycle to get ready for my next deployment. So there's the disruption from that perspective. You also have um, kind of during deployments issues. You know, you, you're out to do some military to military security cooperation exercise, and now your ship gets pushed in another direction to do some kind of humanitarian response or a NEO or something to, along those lines. Yeah, so and, a, and a NEO being a non-combatant evacuation operation. Yes, yeah. thank you. I, you're doing a good job. I'm failing at <laughs> describing my acronyms today. So thank you, John. So you have all of those. That being said, I think this is one area where Congress gets it or cares. Um, all of these military bases belong to different members of Congress uh, of both parties, and they both want those military bases to be enduring and survivable and grow and contribute to the national security of our nation. So even though kind of a lot of climate policy has ebbed and flowed over the years, Congress started putting about five years ago and much more kind of requirements on the on the DOD to say, you need to understand these vulnerabilities better and you need to give us reports on it and you need to start doing something. That being said, if you go back to the 1990s, it's the engineers, the people who are doing this type of resilience building because a building gets built and is expected to last 50, 60 years. So you, you cannot build a good building that's going to last if you don't take some of these changes into account. And our engineers, uh, like uh, Naval Facilities Command, uh, just for a Navy example, has been doing that for some time and are continuing to do it better and better and better. The big question is, what standard do you build to? Do you build to your, you were talking about um, sea level rise, do you build to your worst case scenario of storm surge? Or do you build to, you know, a category three hurricane? You might recall some of the discussions after Hurricane Katrina. You know, we built the levees around New Orleans to, to have the Hurricane 3 standard, and then they got hit with a Hurricane 5. So the, the, the what we had built was not sufficient, and then that unfortunately bore out to be true. So we really have to think through what is the level of standard that we want to put onto our national security so that we can protect that way. So the interesting thing, I've been, you know, trying to read up on some of the scientific reporting analysis on sea level rise, uh, something called uh, was it subsidence. Uh, have you heard of that term before? So that's, you know, as the waters rise, it penetrates deeper inland, which causes the coastal areas to sort of sink uh, into the oceans a little bit. Uh, so places like Florida are in big trouble, uh, but they but those reports are highlighting that really the Gulf Coast and the East Coast are the most uh, of, of greatest concern right now on continental United States side. Uh, Hawaii has already been losing beaches to sea level rise in the Pacific. China, China's coastal areas are actually considered some of the most uh, vulnerable uh, to these sea level rise issues. So we go back to you know talking about a competitor, a global competitor. Uh, China is dealing with these these issues directly right now. Uh, does that, I mean, how much is that going to impact uh, our capacity to defend uh, the country's interests if, if everybody around the world, all these coastal areas are, are sort of suffering from loss of land? Climate refugees, uh, I mean, I would tell you that if we, I mean, if you've been in Florida, I'm sure. I, I was stationed at, uh, at McDill Air Force Base in Tampa, Florida. Um, if we get four to six feet of sea level rise, there there is, by the end of this century, I mean, I'll be dead, you will too probably, uh, there is a significant change in population that has to take place on, on the Florida, you know, people are going to have to move, move to higher ground, infrastructure too. If that's happening globally, that's a major shift. Is this the kind of instability that you're thinking about long term? Yes. Absolutely. Because if you think about how much of the percentage of the global population lives on the on these borders, right, you know, these littorals, what we call them, these areas about 100 kilometers in from from the shoreline all around the world, it's going to affect a lot of people. They'll either adapt or they'll move. Those are kind of the two basic strategies that you could do. But there's a huge financial cost to that uh, for moving people out of those areas, right, that all governments are going to have to face. 
Absolutely. And that's the biggest kind of open question is I, I kind of mentioned it before. You either manage this or you don't. And nobody wants to move. I mean, it's really hard to say, yes, I know your family has lived in this small town for a hundred years, but you're just not going to be able to have a livelihood and safety any longer. It's time to move. You just don't want to do it until it's absolutely necessary. But then you're naturally in a reactive place. I imagine that conversation is going to shift uh, sometime in the next 10, 20, 30 years, it's already shifting for the, the local communities who are kind of feeling the, the earliest effects of this. And some of that, I mean, you mentioned Alaska earlier as one of the, you know, the, 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 the congressional delegates from Alaska are well aware of how climate change is impacting their state already. Uh, there have been native communities on the north slope of Alaska that have actually had to pick up and move their entire villages further inland because the seas have been eroding uh, what used to be frozen solid ground, the, the permafrost areas. Uh, so Americans are already being impacted directly by this. It's just that the rest of us who live in the coastal areas are going to be impacted more as we progress through this century. Is that kind of what you see happening, too? Absolutely. And the biggest question is who's going to pay for it? Even you get the indigenous community example, and they're looking for, okay, we understand we need to move. We can move. We agree to move. And how much are you going to help us move? And that's not, that's not just a, you know, Northern Alaska kind of question. That's a question in Florida, in, in anyone that owns a coastline. And I wanted to make another point about you, you were looking at Norfolk. And Norfolk's a really great example. They've known about this issue for some time. They've been building the piers to, uh, you know, they've been elevating the piers so that you can still pull your ships in, which is great and good work. Uh, what you can't do is elevate the entire base. So you might get some elevation in the roads and you can't elevate the entire city. So everywhere, you know, when you leave the ship and you live out in town with your family, um, the whole community is affected by this. So when you talk about, you know, our, does it affect national security, it's very likely that one event or what we call sunny day flooding, this nuisance flooding, it's not a storm that hits you. It's just regular high tide that is now affecting your, your streets. You, your water is blocked to go to your house or, unfortunately, the main road going into Norfolk is just underwater. <laughs> so how do you get to and from work? Do you? These are just huge questions, and we can only build up so much to answer this question. Yeah, I think even the Dutch are getting a little concerned about sea level rise. Uh, but, you know, Venice, Italy, uh, that's that place is regularly flooding now at high tide. Uh, so these are all things that we have to start thinking about from a national security perspective. What are the pressures that governments around the world are going to face from their people as people start to realize that the climate has changed and it's forcing a change in societies? Uh, Andrea, we have just about uh, five minutes left or so on the show. I know you have to run. Uh, you are teaching uh, 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 right after we get done with this, so so good uh, good for you. Uh, I always try to give my guests the final word uh, each week. What what final thoughts would you like to share with our listeners on this nexus of of climate change and national security interests? Uh, what what haven't I asked you this morning that we absolutely must discuss before we finish our show today? So climate change is local. A lot of people kind of don't realize the big everything. You don't have to worry about uh, deserts in Africa. You can worry about fire, fire, fires in California. And that is your probably your one singular experience of climate change. And when you start to understand it bigger and bigger and bigger, one, it can be just completely overwhelming, all of the changes that are happening so fast. But it's not to disempower you. It's local. You'll experience it local. So I emphasize resilience with, to all the listeners out there. What does it mean for your family, your community, your uh, profession? You know, what will your workday look like? What are your contingency operations? Really give some thought to should something happen to you where that wherever you are, whatever the vulnerability might be, that you can be as resilient as possible. Have a plan and and be ready to go, and not just you, but your family, and talk about it openly, and talk about your neighbors. You know, when it actually happens, you'll be worried about the old lady next door, and the dog across the street. You know, give it a little thought and preparation so that you increase your resilience. It, it's very empowering to do that, 
and to feel like, well, should something happen, the worst thing that might happen, you are at least uh, prepared to deal with it. So we're going to have to wrap things up uh, for today. Commander Andrea Cameron, thank you so much for joining us today from Belgium uh, to talk about uh, climate change and national security. Are there any resources that you might highlight for our listeners so they can learn a little bit more about this? I mean, great websites that you're aware of that talk about this kind of nexus of climate change and national security? Well, I tell everyone the Center for Climate and Security is a think tank of retired flag officers. I love that one. I'm on their mailing list. I participate in all their events. Um, And they're always just dedicated to what's going on in Congress, what's going on on the highest levels of the Pentagon, and sharing that information. So I definitely recommend that one. If you're just interested in climate change information in general, NASA has amazing information and it's really uh, well communicated. You don't have to be a climate scientist or any kind of scientist to understand the information that NASA shares. So just, I think it's nasa.climate.gov. But if you do Google NASA climate change, it'll come up and and they have great videos to watch. I share them with my kids. I use them in my class. So that's a great place. And then if you're just a policy wonk like me, we have the DOD climate risk analysis, which was published in 2021. There was a national intelligence estimate on climate change, the first one ever published in 2021, and the DOD climate adaptation plan. And those are kind of the three key places that I look, and we're building from those as we continue to develop climate security policy going forward. Now, you have a a document coming out in fall of this year on climate, is that right? So the, the government is required by law, the whole of government, to do a national climate assessment. And it's every five years, what does climate mean to the United States? It's mostly uh, kind of economic focused. It has been to date. I work on the one chapter that's international, but the rest of it is all domestic. It's it's the responsibility of the government to tell the, the United States, the people in the United States how climate is potentially going to affect them. And the fifth version will come out in fall of 2023. Just a few months from now. I know. We've been working very hard on it. (laughs) (laughs) Commander Andrea Cameron, who has just recently been selected for promotion to captain in the United States Navy. Congratulations. Thank you so much for your time today and for joining us all the way from Belgium. Thank you, John. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. I uh, I love all of your books. If those don't know, I if you don't know John's books, please look them up because I'm a big fan of yours and I'm really honored to join you today. Well, thank you very much. Uh, and that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Uh, thank you for joining us today here on KYMN Radio. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week. Have a great finish to your week, everybody. Take care. You've been. Your town, your life, your radio station, KYMN Northfield.